Today, the message is called How to Overcome Enemy Attacks. In the sixth chapter of Nehemiah, opposition to the building of the wall kind of reaches a climax. Early opposition had been directed against the workers, the Jewish workers on the wall, but in chapter six, it's directed toward Nehemiah personally. And it's a good reminder for all of us that we should expect enemy attacks when we follow God. Hopefully you were told that early on. Expect enemy attacks when you follow God. If you haven't already, grab your sermon notes from your bulletin or download those on your app as well. You see, uh, some Christians sort of have the idea that if you live for the Lord and follow what God's Word says, that He's going to shelter you from all adversity. But I've discovered, and I'm sure you have as well, if you've been a Christian long, that when you commit yourself to a life of faith, when you declare to God and to others that you're going to walk with Him regardless, that's kind of when it all happens. The enemy turns every gun he has upon you to uh, blast you out of the saddle, to make you finish the season in defeat, to make you feel like it's not worth it after all. But following Christ's call may actually involve more attacks, not less attacks. The call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is a call into spiritual battle. But happily, it's also a call into greater strength and victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. So think of the experience of our Lord's disciples when Jesus challenged them, take up your cross daily and follow me. Think of Peter's letter to the Ephesians when he said, put on all God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Beloved, we are in a spiritual battle. Every Christian is in this fight. And one of the greatest values of Nehemiah's memoirs is that it teaches us how to overcome these attacks. I like Gary Larson in his uh, Far Side cartoons, and a cartoon that he penned years ago uh, comes to mind when I think about this. Let's look at that for just a minute. Expect enemy attacks when you choose to follow Christ. Therefore, we need to recognize the tactics of our enemy. And by tactics, I mean the strategies or the clever tricks that Satan and his fallen angels will throw at us. Consider again Ephesians 6.11. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's some predictable schemes, some strategies that we should expect. And recognizing how he attacks us really is half the battle. So in Nehemiah chapter 6, there's three different kinds of attacks. Excuse me. Three kinds of attacks, each prompted by the enemy's same motive to stop the project by discouraging Nehemiah and the workers. So a little bit review in case you haven't been with us in recent weeks. The story of Nehemiah takes place about 444 B.C. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. He worked for the the king, the emperor of Media Persia Empire, which was the dominant world power of its day. One day, Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, came to visit him in Susa, the capital of Persia, and Nehemiah asked him, how are things going in Jerusalem? And he gave him his report, and he was so discouraged to hear how bad, how rough 
things are going in Jerusalem. Since Nehemiah was a Jewish man, he knew the importance of Jerusalem. And so after much prayer, like four months of prayer, he, he decides that he needs to go to the king and ask for permission to go back and rebuild the city of his ancestors. He gets that permission. A couple months later, he's in Jerusalem. He's sharing his vision with the people to rebuild the city walls. And this is a mammoth task, understand, but it's an essential task because cities and nations were dependent on walls and gates for protection. So they begin, they get off to a great start, but their enemies were not happy about that. The surrounding nations did not want a strong Jerusalem again, and they began to oppose it every way they could. Satan wasn't happy either, and so he stirred up division and disunity among the workers. And that's where we left off last weekend. Today we come to chapter 6, which is the enemy's attacks against Nehemiah himself. And we're going to see three distinct attacks that we should be prepared for today as well. Okay, the first attack was one of deception and distraction. Deception and distraction. When their enemies heard that the wall was rebuilt and the only thing left to do was to hang the gates, it enraged them and it caused them to sort of redouble their efforts. And the first one came in the form of a proposed peace conference. So on the surface, this sounds sort of innocent and harmless. In fact, that sounds like something Nehemiah would want to be involved in, right? A peace conference. Let's pick it up at verse 1. Nehemiah 6.1 says, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. We're going to pause right there. Just a word of explanation. That word breach, notice that? Okay, that's talking about a break in the wall or a gap between the completed sections of the wall. So apparently the wall was completed around the city to this point without any gaps, but not yet having the gates or the doors hung in the gates. Let's continue reading verse 2. The enemies realized that, and it says, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakefarim in the plain of Ono. So the first tactic his enemies used was to sidetrack him. They said, Nehemiah, we need to have this conference. Let's sit down together and talk. I know, yeah, we've had our disagreements. We've had some problems. So that's why you need to come down to Ono and let's meet together and let's sort of talk this through. Now, we don't know exactly where the plain of Ono was or is. We believe that it might be over near Joppa toward the uh, Mediterranean Sea, about an hour's drive west of Jerusalem if you're driving a car. You know, so what, what could be wrong with getting together to talk, right? Well, here's what was wrong with it. Listen to Nehemiah's wise response. See, Nehemiah suspected something was up. He had no way at first of proving their motives were evil, so rather than question the motives, which would make him look bad, he chose a response that would ultimately prove their true motives, what they were. Let's continue reading in verse 2. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. So Nehemiah is basically saying, I'm too busy, the work is too important for me to stop, I'm not going to come down and meet with you. What was the first attack? It was one of distraction. 
He says, I'm not going to be distracted from what God has called me to do. And he recognized the harmful intent behind their invitation. Okay? But they kept the messages coming. They were probably nice embossed invitations with lovely printing on them. Who knows? But the messengers brought them four times in a row. And four times Nehemiah gave the same answer. No way. I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. He would not be distracted from God's priority given to him. And my friends, understand this. The enemy of our soul today will do everything in his power to distract you and me from his priorities as well. He certainly will. So attack number one was recognized and avoided, and that brings us to a second attack. And the second attack is one of rumor and criticism. First there were those... First, there were these personal requests for the meeting. And next, they send Nehemiah an open letter. And the attacks intensify with a false accusation. Notice the intimidating, threatening nature of this letter. Let's look at it beginning at verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Gentiles intend to rebel. That's why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. And so now come and let us take counsel together. So he's threatening to send a report back to King Artaxerxes in Persia, these false accusations. But this letter, this invitation came to Nehemiah this time as an open letter, it says in verse 5. What's that mean? Well, this is a letter that's open so that it can be widely read. Sort of the equivalent of social media today. Right? Put it out on Pinterest or Twitter, just make sure everyone hears the accusation. They're, they're like, uh, it's sort of like saying, uh, you wouldn't come when we invited you privately, so now we're going to let everybody know what our concern is. We plan to expose you. We want everyone to know what you're up to. And so they tried to slander Nehemiah next. And they do so with this unsealed letter, meant to stir up rumors. And their letter had all of the earmarks of a rumor. Sources were unrevealed, uh, notably exaggerated and inaccurate, and it was designed to hurt Nehemiah. Basically, their charge was treason. You have a plan to make yourself king against King Artaxerxes, and Sanballat's goal was to undermine Nehemiah's integrity. Knowing that, Nehemiah's response was basically straightforward and bold. But I have to pause and say this, friends. Don't be surprised when you decide to follow Christ if people don't start talking about you and spreading untrue things about you, and if you don't become a target for criticism. Question, what should your response be when that happens? What do we do? Let's learn from Nehemiah's bold response, verses 8 and 9. His bold response is this. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you say, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. 
Have you ever had to stop something that you were doing because somebody was criticizing you and you wanted to defend yourself? Nehemiah said, I'm not going to get caught up in that trap. I'm not going to start responding to all the rumors, all the innuendos, and he didn't. He openly denied the accusations, but he did it clearly and publicly and very briefly. And then he got back to work. He didn't waste a lot of time and energy on this. He simply denied the accusation and prayed, God, give me strength. And by the way, it wasn't until this point that Nehemiah mentioned their motives at all. And that's a good reminder. This is super important. Listen, we get into trouble when we publicly question the motives of other people, especially if we try to give a motive to them. Nehemiah knew better, so he, didn't let, so he decided, I'm going to let their actions reveal their motives. And it was only at this point, after five messages, with the last one in writing, that he even points out the problem at all. We get ourselves into trouble as well if we question the motives of others who are trying to hurt us by the things they say. Parents, I want to encourage you to be especially careful here. Because you can break a child's spirit very easily if you wrongly accuse them of their motives. It's good to respond to actions. It's dangerous to try to guess motives unless you are absolutely sure. But that is true also of other relationships as well. And by the way, it's impossible not to be hurt by rumors and false accusations like this. I have been, so have you, I'm guessing. But we find comfort in the example of Nehemiah here. We also find even greater comfort in the example of our Lord Jesus, who knew this problem all too well. I, I love what Peter wrote about it in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed, for the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. Peter says, don't be surprised when people speak bad things about you. In fact, take it as a blessing, because you will be blessed by God for that. In fact, Jesus gave that as one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who suffer persecution for me, for their reward will be great in heaven. So Nehemiah's first attack was deception and distraction. The second attack, false accusation and rumor. But his enemies were relentless. They persisted in their evil plans. And the third attack was one of intimidation and fear. Intimidation and fear. And I especially want to highlight that word fear here because it appears repeatedly throughout chapter 6. In my Bible, I've underlined all five places that it occurs. Once back in verse 9, as frightened, and then four more times in this final section we're about to read. Please look for this word or related words as we read through the text. So the third attack begins with a message involving spiritual intimidation. Here, Nehemiah's enemies hire a man on the inside to deceive Nehemiah. And we don't know much about him, except that he claims to be a prophet. He has all the trappings of a prophet. Let's listen to his attack in verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, 
the uh, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Can you imagine getting a warning like that from somebody you knew? A death threat, basically. And I suspect that Shemaiah's message included something like this. Listen, Nehemiah, there are Jews in this city whose livelihoods are being hurt by this wall you're building. The Jews in this city, you know, they have business deals and trade agreements with the surrounding nations, and they don't like what you're doing here at all. And there is a group that plans to kill you. They're actually going to come at night while you're asleep and kill you. And Nehemiah, you know I'm your friend. You can trust me. So here's what we need to do. We need to go to the temple and lock ourselves in the temple. And you need to cling to the altar because everyone knows if you cling to the altar, that guarantees you get a fair trial. And Nehemiah looks back at him and basically I think what he says is, I don't believe you for a minute. And even if I did believe you, I'm going back to my work on the wall. I'm doing an important job that cannot stop now. And I'm not going to let the rumors, I'm not going to let the slander and the threats, I'm not going to let fear keep me from doing what God tells me to do. Two fatal flaws in Shemaiah's so-called prophecy. First, it wasn't logical that God would ask Nehemiah to stop at this point in the project. Okay, God had miraculously protected him and given him success all the way along, and now the project is right on the cusp of being done. Why would God ask him now to go run for his life? And the second flaw is that what was proposed is that basically Nehemiah violate the Old Testament law. Because Nehemiah wasn't a priest, and only priests were permitted to go into the holy place in the temple. And so Nehemiah put these flaws together and was convinced this guy's a false prophet. And thus we read a very discerning response. Nehemiah's discerning response is full of faith and courage. Let's pick it up at verse 11. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Again, Nehemiah's discernment is evident. He's able to detect the deception of his enemies and recognize they're trying to intimidate him and make him look bad. Well, eventually they finish the wall. They finish their project, including the hanging of the doors. And so the next thing we're going to read, verse 15, is mission accomplished. An exciting verse. Very simple report of an exceedingly great accomplishment in verse 15. Look at it with me. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. The wall was finished. They got it done in less than two months. That was a God thing. In fact, look at the way the enemies, their enemies talked about it in verse 16. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. 
for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So now the tables are turned. Before this point, the Jews were discouraged and afraid, but who's afraid now? It's the, their enemies. They've completely lost their confidence because they recognize that God had given them success. This was a God thing. And this brings me to a very interesting point. Beloved, don't miss out on being part of God's miracles. Don't miss out on what God wants to miraculously do. So a few weeks ago, the Bozels, the Bozel family was with us here in our services. I was preaching in Nehemiah chapter 3, and they're missionaries that our church supports. And after the service, I was talking with Jeff Bozel, and he commented to me that he planned to write a blog about the nobles of Tekoa that we read about in Nehemiah 3. So I credit Jeff for, for this point. You remember maybe Nehemiah 3, it's a chapter that with all of these names and all of these places around the wall of Jerusalem, and, and we, you kind of might want to pass over it, but we, we highlighted the, the men of Tekoa because even though their leaders, their nobles, refused to help with the project, they did their part and even more. They took on a second portion of rebuilding the wall. Now, we don't know why the nobles of Tekoa chose to sit out the project, but we could make our guesses. The reasoning doesn't matter. What matters is what we just read in Nehemiah 6, 15, and that is that the wall was finished without them in 52 days. So that would have been a tremendous feat, even if some big construction company had been involved in the project. But this was just a bunch of ordinary people. Priests and goldsmiths and merchants, and one dad even had his daughters out there on the wall, and clearly this was a God thing that God accomplished through them. But the nobles who took themselves out of the game missed out on being part of it. They missed out on the blessing. They missed out on the reward of seeing the wall completed in just 52 days. Friend, please don't miss out on the miracles God has lined up for you. Be part of what God's doing here at Lake City, but be part of what God wants to do through you in your life and in the world as well, whether it's through giving or serving in a ministry or praying, whatever it is, be engaged. And if you can, be like the people of Tekoa who took on a double portion of the project. Don't miss out on being part of God's miracles in your life. Finally, let's read the rest of Nehemiah 6. Verses 17 to 19 say this, Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son, Jehonahan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Nehemiah adds this little postscript here to remind the people that even though the wall was done, the danger was not over. See, Tobiah and his son had married Jewish women, and they used those relationships to undermine Nehemiah's influence, his leadership. He al they also continued sending intimidating letters hoping to make Nehemiah afraid. And it was a reminder for the people that they needed to place their confidence not in the walls and the gates, but in the God 
who enabled them to build them. Well, all of the attacks we've seen today have something in common. They're personal attacks against Nehemiah, the leader. See, up to this point in the story, the opposition has been against the people, the the workers as a whole. They tried to attack them. They tried to make them afraid. But now this last-ditch effort, because the wall is almost finished, they go directly after the leader. And it's a reminder of what we need in order to overcome enemy attacks. I want to summarize it with four things you need to overcome enemy attacks. We all face them. We all need these four things in our lives. Number one is a compelling purpose. A compelling purpose. Nehemiah's first attack was one of deception and distraction. They tried to get him to stop. Do you remember what his response was? I'm doing a great work. I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. See, Nehemiah had a compelling purpose, a vision that involved him and motivated him to get going every day. Friend, is there a great project, a compelling purpose in your life that motivates you? What motivates you to get up out of bed every day? What motivates you to keep working and to keep living and to keep serving, to keep going? Until you have a compelling purpose for your life, you are just existing. We all need to give ourselves to something that pulls us along, something that is bigger than ourselves. One person put it like this, great people are just ordinary people who have made a great commitment to a great cause. I like that. And that cause draws them out of themselves and makes them more than they could be on their own. You need a compelling purpose for your life. And I submit to you that the most compelling purpose in life, the greatest cause you can give your life to is the kingdom of God. There is nothing greater to invest your life in. Nothing that is like it that is going to last for eternity. Jesus said it like this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the great commission. That's our compelling purpose. And if you add to that the great commandment that Jesus gave, Our purpose in life becomes to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourself, and to make disciples for Christ. Unfortunately, it's so easy to get distracted by life. I think the game Trivial Pursuit sort of describes a lot of people's lives. And so I'd ask you today, are you easily distracted from God's priorities? Are you easily distracted from the compelling purpose Jesus has given to you. Jesus said it like this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Friends, what motivates you? What are you living for? There is nothing greater that you can invest your life in than the kingdom of God. But we also need to have accurate perception Accurate perception. That's what Nehemiah had. Very good spiritual discernment. Every time a track came up, he sensed it. He recognized it. In verse 2, they said, come over and talk with us. And he's like, but they intended to do me harm. And I said, no. In verse 9, 
they made false accusations against him. And Nehemiah said, but they were trying to frighten us. He recognized their motives. In verse 10, the guy said, let's, let's go hide out in the temple where we'll be safe. They won't be able to kill you there. And Nehemiah realized God did not send this guy. He had the ability to smell out a trap. And if you are going to accomplish much for God, you have to have accurate perception, spiritual discernment. Question, are you easily deceived? Are you easily frightened? And if so, how do you keep yourself from going there, from being deceived? I think a great answer to that was given in Joshua 1, 8 and 9. Joshua 1, 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You want to be able to discern when someone is speaking untruth. You want to be able to discern when something is not quite right. You need to be in God's word every day. You need to meditate on it day and night. And you need to be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And that will also keep you from fear. So we need to have a compelling purpose. We need to have accurate perception. The third one is consistent prayer. Nehemiah was something of a prayer addict. He was very consistent in prayer. His first response was always to pray. Seven times in this short book, we see him in prayer. No matter what happened, his first response was to pray. And that's the first thing we need to do when we're criticized or slandered. Nehemiah didn't get defensive and he didn't retaliate when they started making all these accusations. He just said, that's not true. And he went and he prayed about it. Friend, how about you? Are you easily discouraged from trusting God? You get easily discouraged and stop praying. Listen to Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Luke 18, 1 says, After he And he told them a parable. This is Jesus. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Always pray and don't lose heart. And then he goes on and tells them a story, a parable to explain that. See, we will all face enemy attacks and we'll either pray consistently or we will lose heart and give up. You always do one or the other. You need a consistent prayer life or else when the pressure is on, you will panic. We have some tools that we have developed as a church family to help us develop consistency in our prayer life. And that's what our prayer campaign has been about these last few weeks. You heard David mention that a few minutes ago. As he said, be sure and stop by the uh, Faith at Home Center and pick up the prayer calendar that's down there for you and the prayer brochure that has some uh, encouraging suggestions for becoming more consistent in prayer. There's the wristband that I encourage you to pick up as well. Try using those. That's also why we do the invest and invite cards, okay? So uh, they're to help us pray more consistently for the people God places in our lives. So I'm going to ask you once again, if you haven't already passed these down your row, please grab them now. It's okay to get up and go grab them. Each person needs one big one and one little one, all right? So grab the stack out of the uh, chair pockets right in front of you if you're on the aisle. Grab those, take them out, 
The little ones get lost in the pocket, so be sure and look for those and grab them and pass them. And we're going to ask you to write the same four names on both cards. Let me read it for you. These are the people God has placed in my life who need to know and follow Christ. I will pray for them daily and invite them to attend an Easter service with me. Write their four names down, print your name. The big one you're going to drop in the offering bag, or if you don't get it in time for the offering bag, you can put it on the offering boxes by the exit doors. And then please take the little card with the same four names and take it home with you as your reminder to pray. All right? So same four names. Keep one to remind you to pray daily between now and Easter. And the big one is for us to take and to pray for you and your friends. Hopefully that makes sense. We're going to pray for those during those four days of prayer that begin two weeks from today. But we want to give you a chance to uh, get started and, and get your card today because we realize not everyone comes every week. So please fill that out and uh, leave it for us today. Also, please come and be part of our concert of prayer two weeks from today in the gym. All right, the fourth thing we all need is courageous persistence. Courageous persistence. One of the keys to success in life is just the ability to hang in there. Keep on keeping on. Keep on doing what God wants us to do. Okay, we all get tired in the battle. We all grow weary at times. And basically, the encouragement of God to us is don't give up. We need courageous persistence. And by the way, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is moving ahead in spite of your fear. In Nehemiah 11, excuse me, in, in chapter 6, verse 11, Nehemiah said, Should a man like me run away? He, he didn't say, I'm not afraid, so I'm not going to run. He's saying, I shouldn't run. I think Nehemiah was afraid, but he had the courage to stay and do the right thing. How do you know when you're afraid? When you're afraid, you have this insatiable desire to run. To run from your job, to run from your marriage, to run from uh, your children, your relationships, from school, whatever it is, to just beat it, to get out of there. One of the things I've learned over the years is that it's rarely God's will for me to run from a difficult situation. And if I do... God will likely bring along another one similar to it for me to learn from. So why run? It's better to just go ahead and face it by, and ask God for courage and wisdom to learn from it. Kind of a silly but uh, example that comes to my mind is when I was 11 years old, I gave up on baseball. I loved baseball, but at the end of my second year of Little League, my coach came to me and he said, you've been doing really good. You're a good hitter. Uh, we want to I'm going to make you a pitcher next year. And uh, so I thought about that over the summer, and I never went back. I said, I'm, I'm, if I have to be the pitcher and be up front where everybody's looking at me and watching me, I'm out of there. I'm not going back next year. And I didn't. I was afraid of being in the limelight, so I quit, and I never went back. Guess what? God found another way to help me get used to being in, in up front. <laughs> it doesn't pay to run from your fears. We need to face them with God's help. Friend, do you easily get weary and give up? Is it easy for you to give up when the, when the going gets hard? Listen to the encouragement for us from Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
Don't grow weary of doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not give up. So four things today that you and I need to overcome enemy attacks. As our next steps today, I encourage you to circle one of these four or to put a star by one of these four and to ask God to help grow you in that area, especially this coming week. Number one is a compelling purpose. Number two is accurate perception, spiritual perception. Number three is a consistent prayer life. And number four is courageous persistence. Courageous persistence. That's how Nehemiah was able to do in 52 days what other people had been saying for the last 80 years couldn't be done. And God used him greatly as a result. Let's pray. Please bow with me as we pray. Father God, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the example of Nehemiah and how you used him to build up the city of Jerusalem. And please help us, Father, to be more effective today in serving you and accomplishing great things for you as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Help us to be courageous leaders in our families, in our schools, in our workplace, in our community, and here in our church. Lord, I pray you would raise up a generation of Nehemiahs here at Lake City, people who have a compelling purpose to serve you and your kingdom, people who have an accurate perception of what's really important, people who are consistent in prayer and courageously persistent in life. Father, we ask that you would do that for your glory and for the fame of your name. And then, friend, if you're here today and you've never taken that very first step of faith to receive God's forgiveness through faith, I want to invite you to pray a prayer, just a, a silent prayer in your heart of hearts to ask God to forgive you for your sins and to receive his forgiveness and eternal life. Just say something like this silently in your heart if you're ready to do that today. Say, Father, I admit today that I have sinned against you and I can't earn your favor, your forgiveness by myself. So I turn from my sin and I put my faith in Jesus Christ alone today. I trust his death and resurrection to forgive me. And I receive the offer of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Christ. I invite him into my life today and I invite him to take over and to help me live a life that honors you. Father, we pray these things. We thank you for that amazing gift and we pray that you would make us a people who honor and glorify your names and our victorious over the attacks of our enemy. For it's in the strong name of Jesus we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Thank you. God bless you.